If you'll turn with me to Psalm 126, that's page 517 in your pew Bible. Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Geb. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Thanks be to God. That is the word of the Lord. Before Pastor Steve comes up, let's watch this video. Is it to be? He wrote his name in the history books for the quickest ever Olympic goal in the semi-final. After the Weberton save, he's gifted Neymar the opportunity to conclude it here. Neymar of Barcelona, of Brazil, gives Brazil their first ever Olympic gold medal. Such delight, sheer joy, and the pain of the 7-1 loss to Germany at the World Cup forgotten. There is Klos now in Brazilian football once more. The only piece of silverware missing from Brazil's enormous, exceptional, extended trophy cabinet was the Olympic gold medal. They have now secured that. And there is relief and joy and celebration. It's a carnival in the Maracanã. We are going somewhere this morning. Uh, I remember um, pretty vividly watching the 2014 World Cup match where, <clears throat> where Brazil was playing Germany. And uh, we were still living in Boston at the time. And so a, a group um, of friends and I, we went to watch this at a, at a sports bar in downtown Boston. And it, uh, this room was just packed wall to wall with Brazilian fans. I mean, there's yellow jerseys everywhere you could see. And I don't know if you follow soccer or if you know much about this particular match, but it was a semifinal, so we're talking about the final four teams in the World Cup competing for, you know, this, this uh, big, huge prize. And it, the World Cup was being held in Brazil, but Germany was actually favored to win this match. And yet, there's all this mystique about Brazil, one of the greatest soccer countries in the world they're playing at home, they're hosting the World Cup, and there's this belief that even though they may not be the best team, they're, they're still probably going to win. Like there's going to be this magical moment, and they're going to pull this thing out. And then Germany scored a goal early in the match, and then they scored another goal, and another goal, and another goal. It was four to nothing at halftime, and it was seven to one when the game was over. And it was, it was interesting being in that room because with every goal, it just got like sadder and sadder and quieter and quieter. I mean, this 7-1, to one, I don't know if you know anything about soccer, but 7-1 to one rarely happens even in high school soccer, let alone the World Cup, let alone a World Cup in Brazil, Brazil losing 7-1. I mean, just unthinkable result. So then you fast forward to 2016, to the Olympics, also being held in Brazil, and to this clip that we just watched. And when Neymar buries that penalty kick in the back of the net and they win the gold medal, did you pay attention to the language 
that the announcer used? What were the words? Relief, redemption, joy, right? And did you see the tears running down the faces of the players and the coaches and and the body language? They're just like, oh, we did it. We won. I don't care about Brazilian soccer, to be honest. But in that moment, I am there with those guys. I mean, I can feel that. This is one of the things that I love about sports. They mirror life in so many different ways, and it's oftentimes the wins that come after a humiliating or brutal defeat that are all the more sweet, right? Now, Sheryl Sandberg is the COO of some little startup called Facebook. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. Um, She tragically lost her husband a couple of years ago, and she's been very open and public about the grieving process that she's been through. And she's uh, spoken a lot about it, written a lot about it. I had a chance to hear her speak about this over the summer. And one of the things that stood out to me is that in in her process of recovery, she's learned that there's a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. And that phrase has just been with me for the last couple of months, post-traumatic growth. She said we've done a lot of good work as a society naming and treating post-traumatic stress. But there's also this phenomenon measurable that that health professionals have been able to see, and it's called post-traumatic growth. Now, all of this raises the question, is it possible that we could go through something difficult, challenging, even traumatic, and come out of it on the other side more alive, more loving, and even more joyful? Is that possible? How is that possible? Today's psalm begins to give us some answers to this question. It gives us deeper insight into what I think is one of the most misunderstood qualities of the life of a disciple of Jesus, and that's joy, what C.S. Lewis calls the serious business of heaven. Serious business, right? So what I want to do now is uh, let's pray. Just take a moment here to pray, and then we're going to dive into the text as we talk about joy. Father, we know that there is a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's a lot of stuff going on in our own lives that is challenging and difficult and can make this idea of joy seem very elusive, kind of like the, the picture that we just saw, sort of a fairy tale kind of thing. And yet joy is one of the marks of disciples of Jesus. And so give us uh, some things to grab onto this morning, God, so that we may be able to build and recognize and have some joy in our lives. Uh, Soften our hearts. um, Give us the space to hear and to respond to what we need to respond to this morning together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our psalm, Psalm 126, opens like this. Verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The first word of this psalm orients us in the past, okay, with this word when. So the song begins with remembering, remembering something that God has done. 
Now, what did God do here? It says that he restored the fortunes of Zion. And this is sort of a general, generic term that's being used here to speak of a number of instances where God had worked in their past. Zion is often associated with the city of Jerusalem, and it can be used as a stand-in for God's people. And so, again, the sense here is that, hey, remember this time, those times, all those different things that God has done for us in the past, all those times where God has come through. Do you remember that? And key word there is the word restored. This is the Hebrew word shavot, and it is a term that refers to a complete reversal of fortune total turnaround that could only have been brought about by the power of God. Shavuot, a complete reversal of fortune. So what the psalmist is doing here is urging the original audience and subsequently us to look back and to remember those times, those moments where it was so obvious that only God could have done something in that circumstance, in that situation. In the second part of the verse, says we were like those who dream and we use this kind of language even to this day right we say things like that was better than I could have imagined it was beyond my wildest dreams now you may when you look back in your story you may have some of these moments where again you look at what happened and the only explanation is God came through for me in that situation And not only that, but God came through and it was even better than I could have imagined. It was a better story than I could ever have written on my own. This is the the idea here of verse 1. Remember those times when God has come through for us. The result of all that in verse 2, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them for us. So there's this dramatic, incredible reversal of fortune, and the result is joy. Now these psalms that we've been looking at, we've been doing this from time to time here over the last several months, uh, the Songs of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, we've said again and again, right, they were songs that were sung by Hebrew pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem for one of the major festivals of the year. A good Hebrew would have done this three times. And so they would, these songs would have been a significant part of their formation. And so we've been using them for our own selves as a way to frame our conversation about discipleship in the way of Jesus. And one of the things that this psalm teaches us is that discipleship can be, should be, fun. Not easy, right? Jesus never promises us that it will be easy, that following him is going to just transform our life into nothing but good times and jokes and laughing. (laughs) But there, there is, there should be laughter and lightness and joy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Maybe we can say it this way. If we're joyless in our discipleship, something is off. This is like, uh, you know, those lights on your dashboard that's telling you there's something wrong in your engine. If your discipleship is joyless, it's a signal that something is off. Now, again, it needs to be said very clearly, this does not mean that we're always happy. 
that we're always pretending like everything is just fine and, and there, we don't have any problems in our life. Joy is not a requirement of discipleship, but it is a consequence. It's a consequence of saying yes to Jesus and paying attention to all the ways that he is at work in our life, all the ways that he's been at work in our life up to this moment. So in order to cultivate joy, we must practice the discipline of looking back and naming all of those times and places where God has come through for us. Joy has a history. And again, I would, I would say this is a spiritual discipline. And I don't know what, what works for you or, or how you process things. Some people like to write, and so maybe you have a journal or a blog or a notebook, whatever it is, where you can jot down some of this stuff. Maybe you're more of a visual person, and so you create photo albums or photo books. But whatever it is, you need to make this a normal part of your routine. Looking back, remembering, naming where God has come through for you. The Hebrews were masters of this. They had so many stories of all the ways that God had come through for them, and they told them again and again and again. Yeah, the story of creation, the story of God choosing Abraham, the story of God giving Abraham and Sarah a son, even though they were way beyond the age of being able to have kids. The story of Joseph ending up in Egypt, but then being able to save his family through that set of circumstances. The story of being rescued from slavery. The story of entering the promised land. The story of battles won and lost, the story of the establishment of the kingdom and the choosing of David, story after story after story where God came through for them. And not only did they tell the stories, but they wrote songs about it. They put it into these psalms so that they could remember because joy has a history. Now, one quick word of caution here. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, at some point, kill joy right? This person is a killjoy. Don't want to be one of those people, by the way. <laughs> but there are a couple of ways that we can kill or at least, uh, you know, put some obstacles to joy into our life. And one of them is this. We replace the discipline of remembering with nostalgia. Remembering and naming what God has done in our past is very different from this desire to want to escape back to some point in our history where it just feels better or safer or easier. We need to name what God has done. We need to preserve that in our memory, but we cannot get stuck in the past. God is always drawing us into the future. And joy has a history, but it is also very much tied to the future. Look at verse 4, where it says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Here, restore is now moved into the present, and in particular, this song has moved from remember all of those things that God did for us to please do that again. We're in, we're in the middle of something. Please come through for us again. Restore our fortune like streams in the Negev. Now, the Negev is a vast desert. There are not a lot of streams flowing through deserts. But from time to time in this area, a sudden rain would come and it would bring a, a flash flood and there would be this 
a temporary moment where there were streams flowing through this desert. And so this first image of a future joy is, is miraculous and instantaneous. Okay, a desert all of a sudden becoming a stream, bad fortune to good fortune, just like that. Sometimes it works like this. God's grace sometimes reveals itself suddenly. Dry places become rivers. And when that happens, that suddenness, that immediacy, it produces joy. This is sitting on the edge of your seat during a shootout. I don't know if you've ever watched the shootout in soccer when you actually care about the outcome. It is nerve-wracking. <laughs> sitting on the edge of your seat wondering, how is this thing going to end? It's going back and forth, and all of a sudden, that winning goal, again, hits the back of the net, and it's just like, goal, joy, this, this release, this instantaneous moment where God comes through. But look at what, what happens next. That's the first image, but there's this second image that gets a little bit more weight. A couple of verses here. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with them. Here we move from the immediate, from the instantaneous, to more of the long view. These images of sowing and reaping, going out and returning home with the harvest. And when we are talking about joy, these images, these agricultural metaphors are so important. And we said before, just a few moments ago, joy is a consequence of discipleship. But again, that doesn't mean everything's going great. We're always happy all the time. Always have a smile on our face. There will be times, sometimes, long stretches of time where we don't feel that, right? We're sowing tears. And here's where I just need to say, it, it's in this moment where a lot of Christians can, can do some damage. My, uh, my mom was diagnosed with clinical depression in her early 30s, and this was back in like the mid-80s when this diagnosis was pretty, uh, uh, it just kind of started coming up and they just created some medication for it. And so she was prescribed some of that medication and a lot of Christians, and my hope is that they were well-meaning, but a lot of Christians came to her and said things like, don't, don't take that. That's a sin. That's a lack of faith. You just need to pray more. Maybe you've heard people say these kinds of things. We need to give people the, the space to sow tears and to go out weeping. Just like you cannot short-circuit the process of planting and harvesting without doing damage to the soil, damage to the crops, you cannot force people into joy without doing damage to their soul. Again, we need to give people the space to sow their tears and to go out weeping. Now, this farming metaphor is interesting because it foreshadows some of Jesus' own words. John chapter 12, he says this, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. <laughs> 
another farming metaphor. Jesus here is talking about himself and he's making reference to the fact that shortly after this, he is going to die. But that's not going to be the end of the story. Okay, there is a resurrection coming. For the disciple of Jesus, our ultimate hope for the future is in the truth, the reality of something that God has done in the past. In the resurrection of Jesus, but also in the future resurrection. If you want to sort of steep yourself in the hope that we have as followers of Jesus, then I would encourage you to spend some time in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, particularly 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here, a guy named Paul, one of the early leaders of the first churches, writes extensively about the resurrection and the hope that we have because of it. So let's look at a couple of, of places where he talks about this. So 1 Corinthians 15, this is verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. These are strong words. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And then verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there is no resurrection, we are most to be pitied. What Paul's saying here is kind of making the argument from the negative. If the resurrection didn't happen, without that, everything is in vain. We're misrepresenting God. We are the most pitiful of all people. We are without hope. But look at what he says next. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then if you rewind the tape even earlier, here's how Paul lays out the good news of Jesus. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he goes on to talk about how the resurrected Jesus made a physical, tangible appearance to a, a whole bunch of people. The resurrection is our ultimate source of joy because of what God has done in the past and his promise of what he's going to do in the future, our hope for resurrection, for the restoration of all things. Now, a second caution, another way that we can kill joy is to suppress our hope. We do this, I think, primarily by numbing ourselves. Numbing is all about avoiding pain. And I don't know that anyone has written better, stronger, more challenging words about the dangers of numbing than C.S. Lewis. Listen to these words of his. He says, there is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. 
All the pet lovers said amen. (laughs) Instead, wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. To hope is to open yourself up to heartbreak. But it is also the only way to experience joy. You cannot have joy without hope. Now, to put some flesh and blood to all of this, this truth that joy comes by being able to recognize what God has done for us in the past and this truth that our joy is tied to what God is going to do in the future and our hope for the future, I've invited my friend John Logie to share a little bit of his story with us this morning. So John's going to come. We're going to have a little conversation. So welcome him as he joins me on stage. So I don't know if you guys have had the opportunity ever to uh, meet John, but if you haven't, you should. Um, He is, I think, one of the most joyful human beings that I have ever met. And he also gives tremendous hugs. So if you uh, are open to that um, and you want a good hug, you should talk to John. (laughs) Um, So we've been talking a little bit about uh, about joy and, and your story um, over the last couple of weeks. So just to begin with, why don't you tell everyone a little bit ab- about who you are, how you came um, from Haiti here to Oakland, how you became a Jesus follower, um, and some of the highs and lows that you've had on that, on that journey. All right. Thank you, brother Steve. Uh, thank you, Lee Jen, for the opportunity <clears throat> to speak my testimony. As, you, as brother Steve uh, said, I am John. And I'm a joyful individual. <laughs> it didn't all come together at the same time, but it grew into this, it grew into the person I became. My story is, uh, is a touching one even to me, because uh, when Brother Steve asked me to uh, give me an opportunity, he said he was going to give me an opportunity to testify to, you know, to you, I started to write down what has happened in my life. Uh, You're going to have to forgive me because as a minister, I usually get up to minister to people. And during the process of ministering, you end up ministering to you. So in the process of writing uh, writing down my testimony, my life, I started to break down. I mean, it... uh, it, it has revealed to me a situation that I never even thought of. I never even really realized until then. So let's not to prolong the story because I can talk forever, and I hope not to talk forever this morning. In the King James Version, 
It talks about Psalms 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Right here is his handiwork. Right here. This individual here is his handiwork, and hopefully you can see this in, my, in the next few things I'm about to read. My story is Psalms 19. That's my story. I came from Haiti in 1968 by way of adoption by Reverend Logie, my father. You have to, excuse me, my voice starting to quiver because this, really, this has really touched my heart. Reverend Logie introduced me to the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1969. When I was only about five or six years old, I was, li I li I was living on the streets of Haiti without any hope of ever living past 10 years old. That's the fact. That's real. That's right now. And, and just a little pause here. If you know anything about heavy storms, in America it has touched, uh, the hurricane has touched uh, Texas and the other states that you see, you can see in the states that is, has a strong foundation, a strong infrastructure. You see the devastation. Just imagine the same storm that hit Texas passed over Haiti. Haiti has no infrastructure, no foundation, zero. Now you got a whole bunch of people without any foundation, without any structure. This particular storm, you see the devastation it did in Houston. Just imagine, it wipes Haiti out. And this happens on a yearly basis, okay? In 1 Peter 1.3, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that raised him in us from the dead. 1 Peter 1. 1-3, King James Version. How I came to Oakland. I came to Oakland when Reverend Logie and his wife, Jean Logie, adopted me. Yeah, I'm an adoptee. Amazing, huh? I'm an adoptee. And took me into their home out of Haiti in 1969. The Lord set me free from hell. Haiti was a place of hell. In place and before I knew him, way before I knew him, I didn't know anything about the Lord. I didn't know anything about God. Let me regress here just a moment, Brother Steve. One time, you know, I'm about five or six, you know, be careful. Children learn things early. I don't know whether it was because of hardship, and most of it is because of hardship in the island. You grow up today. You're born yesterday. And today, you better grow up. Otherwise, that's it. I'm serious. Life will eat you up. It will eat you up. So when I was, I don't know how old I was. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you because we have no, like I said, Haiti is a situation where there's no infrastructure, no foundation, nothing. So when you were born as a child, you were just born, period. If you're lucky to go through the process of birth, you're just born. And you are just an object on an island, period. No more, no less. Just an object. You have no destination. 
Your family never had any destination. Your family never had any life. So therefore, you were born as an object. You were just there. So when I was born, I don't know how, how old I was or whatever, any, any records of it. I was resting someplace. Must have been my family's home before the devastation of the hurricane. But, you know, we always survived. Uh, and I had a vision. Vision, you know, vision of coming to the United States. I didn't know what the United States was. I'm a child, I don't know anything like that. So that's a vision. I started training, next section, I started training to be a minister in 1979 under my father, Reverend Logie, holding on to scriptures like 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from a child, this is what it says, and that from a child that thou hast known the holy scriptures, which can make thee wise and unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's the King James version of that. I got married when I was about, when I was around 20, and my life started a new phase of problem that I could have never known, imagined. Now, remember, I'm born in Haiti. My life is problem, problem, problem. I came from hell to heaven. The United States is heaven. I'm serious. I came from hell to heaven. I'm in heaven. Wow, I got a family. Wow, I've been adopted. Remember I've been adopted? I got a family. Wow, I have a house. Wow, I have food. So much food. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, I, I'm running water? What is this? Bathroom to go in. Oh, my goodness. That's heaven. Coming from hell to heaven is an amazing thing. I'm serious, it is an amazing thing. Now you wonder why I'm so happy. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, like I said, new phase in life, I got married when I was around 20. And my life started a new phase a problem that I could have never imagined. Now we're coming from hell to heaven, seemingly going back into hell. Oh, oh, <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Skip that part. <laughs> the ups and down, the ups and down of life started. However, my trust in God was strong. Remember, the Reverend Logan introduced me to the Lord. I accepted him as my personal savior, got baptized. My journey is now different than it was when I was in Haiti. Became much more important, now that I'm in the United States, but with the exception of the Lord as my personal savior, knowing him for myself, it again changed. That's, a many, that's many changes an individual has to go through. I went through all those changes. Still going through changes. So my trust in God was strong. The wife and I was uh, with my kid, moved to a church in Fremont, California, to complete my training in the, uh, to complete my training as a minister. In the church in Fremont, I had to endure so many trials, difficulties in, in life, with other set of tests that I did not plan on. I just didn't plan on it. I didn't think these things. Hey, I'm a minister now. I don't, you know, I don't. I didn't think there's problem. I did not think there was problem. I thought it was just 
all roses and flowers and, you know, like I just told you, I came from hell into heaven. I had food. I had a family. A mom and dad. A mom and dad. Wow. You don't know what that was like. So in James 1, James 1, 2 through 4, faith is a foundation of my life. Faith has become a foundation of my life. This has been my foundation in Jesus. This is where my life started to be structured. Another change. Wow, so many changes. But it's all been good. Structured. My life became structured. Where eventually I had to reconnect with Jesus for the second time in my Christian walk with the Lord. Reconnection. Important. Very important to, to have a reconnecting time with your Savior. Because you can, we can go on as Christian in life, but we, never, we are Christian, we are believers, we think we have faith, but we really don't have faith because we have never made a reconnection. It's important as Christian to make a reconnection. That's where things start to change again. This came about after my father's church. Now remember, this is a reconnection. I'm supposed to be in charge, okay? This came about after my father's church that I was supposed to take over, fell apart, leaving me with just a handful of people, okay, in a building that had so much problem that anyone in his right mind would have said, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm serious. No, thank you. Remember the phases I told you about? This is a new phase, new dispensation in my life, okay? Anybody in their right mind said, no, thank you. The building was so delinquent, this building was so delinquent in ways that it just did not make sense. This is the United States. This is a country of prosperity. This is a country of people that love to give. Love to give. They love to do things for people in the country. But this building is delinquent, messed up, <clears throat> in ways that it just did not make sense. My father in our church built the building to help people. Why did everything go so wrong? It didn't make sense why things just went wrong. It didn't add up. Everything fell apart. I've lost the bu I lost the building to a group of people that came in like snakes, convinced me that they were, help they, they were here to help me, to set things right. That did not happen. That didn't happen. It did not happen. It was not the truth. Remember in the Bible how the snake came in and convinced Eve to do something that she shouldn't have? Well, that was these snakes, except they were a little bit more sly. You know, they walked on two legs. They didn't <laughs> get thrown to two legs. They walked on two legs. Okay. <laughs> they did not have the vision of the church and my father. They had a different plan that did not include me or the church. So they took everything. They took everything. And after quite a few hardships, wow, a lot of them, huh? of a divorce from very bad marriage that had no love with, the fear of being, with my fear of being alone and loss of my job and injuries. 
I came to you folks, to regeneration. I met the Lord led me. You know how Lord leads you sometimes through trial and tribulation? He led me here to regeneration. I heard the sisters singing. I heard the songs. I said, oh, I like to praise the Lord. Let me go and praise the Lord with them. Okay, so I'm led to regeneration. I began the, I began the journey to reintroduce myself to my God, to understand why and how God can be so far from, so far from me, a minister, I was supposed to be helping people to trust in, in, in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as in John 8:32, in Matthew 26:39, Jesus trusted in his Father, in, in words like, "Ask and ye shall receive." In Matthew 7:7, 7, 7, Jesus started to be. For, uh, fruitful to uh, fruitful to me uh, became real to me. I started to look at life from a different set of eyes. I knew it is the eyes of the Lord. I knew this. So, speaking of, of eyes of the Lord, how how has that helped you? That we've been talking about um, finding joy by remembering what God has done in the past and, and hope for the future. So talk a little bit about that, how you've cultivated joy by remembering what he's done and hoping for the future. This is another beautiful thing. Beautiful. Just thank you, Lord. My joy is cultivated by remembering what God has done for me in the past and what he means to me today. Jesus has, helped, Jesus has helped me to cultivate the joy from God. And God has helped me to know the love of Jesus, his son, his only son, and what he had done for me. Jesus has become real to me in ways that is hard to explain. The Holy Spirit is revealing life to me. That's what. Therefore, I am committed to serving my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. My joy is fueled through granted, uh, uh, granted fu- uh, guaranteed, uh, granted fruits with Jesus, gratitude, gratitude with Jesus. I place all my hope, trust in Jesus, and on him only every day in desire to fulf- to fully understand the scriptures and standing alone on what they say. Thank you, John. (laughs) Give John a hand. I'm going to, let me pray for you. I'm going to, I'm going to pray for John real quick. Uh, Father, thank you for John and just the incredible story that he has. Um, The ways that you've been at work in his life are so evident And uh, may he continue to be an inspiration to us to um, be able to see your work uh, in our life, bringing us to whatever point we are at, but then also clinging to hope for the future and what you are going to do. Um, We ask that you would continue to bless him and use him uh, to build your kingdom here in Oakland. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you want a good hug, there you go. (laughs) So I want to close uh, with this thought. At the very heart of our psalm is this phrase, we are glad. 
Okay, the first half is all about remembering what God has done in the past, the second half hoping for the future, but in the middle it says, we are glad. And I don't know about you, but for me, the, like, I can do the, the work of looking to the past and going, oh yeah, that was God, that was God. And I can get excited about hoping for the future and believing there's got to be something better that God is doing down the road. But it's oftentimes in between those two places that I have the hardest time. You know, Thursday at 2 p.m., it's much harder to say I am glad than when you're having these like reflective moments. So how do we do this? How do we live with gladness and joy? I just want to tell a quick story and then give you some Greek words, and then we'll be done, okay? <laughs> so the story goes like this. A couple months ago, I, I got to hear a pastor share a little bit about his journey, and this is a guy that had spent a significant por- uh, part of his life digging into the, the Jewish roots of the Christian faith and, and had taken many trips to Israel, done all this research, written dissertations and books about the, the Jewish roots of our faith, but through all of that had this sense that I'm not getting any closer to God. I'm doing all of this study, learning all these things, but I'm not actually feeling God's presence. So he decides to take a silent retreat in Israel on Mount Sinai where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And so he goes up there and he spends a couple of days up there in silence hoping to connect with God and nothing happens. Okay, no, no clouds open up, no angels appear, no voice speaks to him. So in that place of feeling frustrated, he heads back down the mountain, and on his way down the mountain, he gets attacked by a camel. Sort of funny, okay? It's okay to laugh about that. But like really, he gets attacked by a camel, bitten by this camel on his way down the, on the, way down the mountain. Eventually he comes back home and he's meeting with his spiritual director, this, uh, this great old nun, and he's pouring out all of his frustrations about how he's been trying to connect with God and he's not feeling anything and I was on this mountain and nothing happened. I got bit by a camel on my way down, pouring all this out and she looks at him after he says all this and she goes, how lucky for you that you've had all of these experiences. How lucky for you that you got to go to Israel and study and spend all of this time getting into all this amazing research and doing all this work and have a silent retreat on Mount Sinai. How lucky for you to have had all of these experiences. And I heard that story and I was like, what? <laughs> it kind of made me mad. And so I, I told that story to my spiritual director and I said, I kind of relate to this story because it feels like it can feel like what ministry is like sometimes. And, and I, I was trying to make all these connections to it. And at the end of that, my spiritual director says, well, do you agree with her? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I can say that. I got bit by a camel. <laughs> Metaphorically, but you know what I mean. <laughs> How can we say that? Now, some Greek words. Kara, charis, and charisma. Okay, joy, grace, and gift all share the same root word. They are deeply connected. Joy comes through a faith that accepts all of life as a gift. This is not an easy thing to do. Paul says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. By charis, you have been saved. It is the charisma of God. 
I don't know what you are going through this morning, what you bring with you into this space. But my guess is that there's some losses, some seven-to-one beatdowns. There's tears that have been sown. And so to be able to say, I am glad, to believe that we can experience post-traumatic growth, to say how grateful I am to have had these experiences. To get to that place, it requires the discipline of looking back and remembering and naming what God has done. And it requires the discipline of holding on to hope even when it looks like all hope is lost. To say, these experiences that I've, that I've had, I'm so grateful. What a grace. What a gift. That is a defiant, subversive statement of faith in our world that more often trends to nostalgia or numbing. And I think it can only be said by faith by grace joyfully received as a gift. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for John's story. Thank you for the ways that you work in our lives and how we can share these stories with one another to put some flesh and blood to these ideas. Again, God, it's so hard to say in the moment that we are glad And so may we have the discipline to look back and name and know where you've been at work and the hope to continue believing that you will do that work again. Father, for those who are here this morning who are not feeling glad, who are not feeling joy, may you meet them with an extra measure of grace this morning and may they be able to receive that as a gift. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.